In this Regen podcast, we'll be focusing on the energy white paper, powering our net zero future. Following on from the 10-point plan and the national infrastructure strategy, the energy white paper provides further clarity on the Prime Minister's measures and puts in place a strategy for the wider energy system. Okay, so the energy white paper has finally arrived. It's been a bit like waiting for Beaujolais Nouveau. Uh, Le paper blanc est arrivé. And now that we've put our nose in the glass and swilled the first mouthful, we're all thinking, was it worth the wait? For one thing, it tastes vaguely familiar. So much of it's been pre, uh, pre-announced in the uh, Prime Minister's 10-point plan and the Treasury's national infrastructure strategy. Uh, but is that unfair? White papers, after all, are signposts on a policy journey, not the destinations. So should we see this white paper in the context of the wider political shift to support net zero and the green recovery? Should we also see it in the context of major policy changes that we are expecting to see announced in the year of COP26? Welcome to Regen's podcast, in which we'll be looking at the UK energy white paper. Joining me to unpack some of the detail and pick out the juicy bits, we have Regen Chief Executive Merlin Hyman, Advocacy and Policy Manager Madeline Greenhall. So Merlin, good morning. Morning, John. Detail of the paper, just give me your overall view on um, its content and, and, and how you're feeling about it. Um, your delayed gratification, was it good for you? Do you want me to carry on with the kind of wine and drinking metaphors? Or, or, am I... do, or maybe we should drop that right now. <laughs> okay. okay, we'll go with that. I, I was thinking a, a bit of a kind of, it was the best of times, it was the worst of times kind of mindset, I guess, as I, as I looked at this. I mean, I glanced back at the kind of 2007 last white paper, believe it or not, energy white paper. And, you know, it is really striking how much the narrative has changed now. There there were words in that about, you know, of course, we'll still need fossil fuels forever. And, you know, they're they're the reliable things. Um, So, you know, to have a government policy document energy that boldly states, you know, the future of our energy system is going to be powered largely by wind and solar. You know, you know, I think we should welcome that kind of moment and what's gone before it. You know, when, when we get times like this. We should, you know, we should recognise the degree of progress, um, the commitment to flexibility, and uh, that you know, the drive towards net zero. Like you say, there, there's a sort of a residual nervousness that we're still in the brochure stage, if you like. We're still setting out the kind of the aspirations and the glossy ideas, and starting to get into some of the kind of really crunchy challenges. But we and we'll probably come to it as we go through it it still feels like we're kind of ducking some of the hard hard decisions not all of them the transport commitment uh, you know to to banning the internal combustion engine that's a you know that's a proper commitment but in a lot of areas particularly perhaps around heat and homes we're still we still feel like we're, we're not quite grasping the nettle so so, so Madeline, merlin's mentioned that it's brochure like you've read a lot of policy papers and you've read a lot of white papers in your time um, do you have the same impression? Is this a sales pitch? And, and and if so, who's the sales pitch to? It does feel like it, doesn't it? It's a it's a very glossy document. It looks really nice. It's 170 pages, but it's actually very easy to read. And that's a positive, you know, for sure. It's got lots of diagrams, lots of modelling to back it up, lots of things that you can, you know, bits for everyone. So if you're not that familiar, there's lots of explanations of how the system works. 
and why this is a good thing. But you can almost see the route from 10 point plan, big announcements, we're going to do all this stuff to a few months later. This document will have been for right round to all of, all of the ministers have to sign this off to say they're going to do it. You can almost see where the route from big announcement to actual delivery, someone's got in there in the middle and said, mm, I'm not too sure about that. Let's let's water this down. Let's not put that detail in. I think the civil servants have been prepared with the detail for a long time. Um, and you can kind of see that this is this was meant to be that delivery. And they've just had people coming in and saying, yeah, I'm not too sure about that, whether that's backbenchers, whether that's ministers, whether that's, I don't know, maybe the house building lobby. <laughs> Is that your, that's your impression? And there's been a bit of a pullback from concrete policy announcements. Yeah, I notice there's lots of, so. we will consult on and we will mm. look at and we will consider rather than actually we will do. Yeah. Um, I mean, we were just talking about, I sent around the other day, that really big a uh, set of policy consultations that might be coming up that policy exchange are very kindly put together for everybody. And it's huge. There are what, at least 50 l- listed on there uh, consultations that may or may not come out in the next year that have been announced in the 10 point plan, the spending review, the infrastructure strategy, the energy white paper. And it does feel a little bit like they're still that they've said that's going to be a consultation so they can kick the can down the road and not have to make that decision right now. But we're just constantly waiting for for that decision to be made. You know, we're, we we need something concrete, not just a promise that it will happen next year. Is that fair, Marilyn? I mean, you know, there's lots of consultations, but is that not a good thing? Because we're all so involved in this and we're all so passionate about it, you know, it, it feels frustrating when uh, you feel like the detail and the the, the decisions are being kicked down the ro- down the road a little bit. But I mean, maybe we need to recognise that the politics of this a bit that not everyone has bought in yet to the kind of scale of change needed to achieve net zero. Um, and there is a lot of engagement and communication required to kind of bring, you know, the public along. And the, the Tory party is obviously very sensitive to, you know, the Telegraph and the Mail and various other kind of stakeholder groups who are, are much less convinced about all this. So going back to your question about, you know, who's it trying to sell to? know maybe maybe there is an element of that you know the number of consultations there definitely is a sense of kicking the can down the road to me but also net zero zero carbon is a huge transformation of society and the government machinery that needs we're beginning to see just how much government machinery you need to crank up um, and start working through if you're going to deliver that kind of kind of change so uh, you know maybe it's just inevitable uh, the idea that we're all, we're, the government's just going to sit down, come up with the right answers, and we'll all get on with it, perhaps was always a bit naive, and maybe it's just an inev- inevitable that this scale of change will require a huge amount of policy development, consultation, testing, you know, stakeholder engagement, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah, you know, the, the, there's definitely a few areas where it looks like consultation for the sake of it, where you would you would expect them to just get on and do it now, or in some areas, instruct the regulator to get on and and, and do it as well. Um, in terms of the, the high-level figures that are in the, the, the paper, I mean, it's interesting that combination of jobs, investment, infrastructure, and carbon reduction. And I suppose that is now the only, you know, the, the best way and the key way in order to to a um, persuade people and to get the politics of this right. It's about decarbonisation, but it's also about green recovery. So we have a figure on decarbonisation, a 68% reduction in carbon emissions by 2030. 
uh, which I think is broadly in line with what we need to do for the fourth and fifth carbon budgets. And we have a figure of 220,000 jobs created in that time period in the, in, in the green recovery. Um, just reflecting on those two high-level figures, do you, do you think the level of ambition is about right, um, Merlin? Uh, I th- the sixty-eight percent comes pretty directly, doesn't it, from the from the committee on climate change changes advice on meeting the on the next carbon budget and the, and the next the twenty thirty-five milestone they're talking about is then about eighty percent, which is if you think about it, up until last year was our statutory target for twenty fifty. So what we're kind of seeing with that sixty-eight percent, eighty percent. Uh, trajectory is that we've brought forward the uh, target to decarbonise by 80% by 15 years. So, you know, when we think about it in that way, we recognise the significance of the of the change in the in the aspirations. So, yeah, I don't think you could, I don't think you could quibble with the level of ambition within all this. I think what our discussion is focusing in on the the delivery, uh, you know, and maybe that's a possible criticism of this government more generally that that the uh you know, the, the press release looks great and the headline looks great but are they able to deliver this scale of change and to make the really the tough decisions and the big required Marlon, you, you you said to me before that this uh, this paper was in the style of a boris johnson government in the sense that i guess you were being a little bit disparaging about the kind of <laughs> level of fluff and a uh, presentation rather than content is that is that what you were saying are you trying to get me to say something bad about our dear Prime Minister on this podcast? I would never. How, how, how dare you, Johnny? Yes, I, I would completely agree. I think it's there's a lot of bluff and, and bluster. And I, I, yeah, I think just on the point about the NDC, it's just, it's similar. Like, I, I do think it's great that we the targets are there and the targets are being brought forward. The ambition is there. I worry that there just isn't the policy substance to back it up and to get us there. It's all very well and good for... Boris to take the headlines by by um, by announcing this stuff and getting all the glory for saying all the right things, but are we actually going to measure up to that and be able to get there? One thing, though, that, that you really see that's changed in the narrative um, is the economic uh, narrative. We've all talked about that for years. I mean, as long as I've been involved in the environmental sector, we desperately try to move away from the sort of jobs v environment narrative because, frankly, you always lose. Is my lesson of. 25 years or so, uh, and, and try and re- rebrand environment as a pro-jobs agenda, if you like. And it, it feels, and there's been a lot of attempts on that, and you and I, Johnny, will remember the last low-carbon industrial plans that Peter Mandelson and Gordon yeah, Brown... Yeah, good old days. ...back in the day. <laughs> uh, the sort of vision of, of places like Falmouth as, as the green jobs capitals of the future that we used to... Um, but you really see a, a drive. The, the Committee on Climate Change's headline number headline was about this isn't going to cost as much as we expect. Boris's sales pitch on this is all about jobs. There's jobs in an energy white paper. There isn't much of that in the last 2007 one. Uh, so that's been a, a clear, real drive. And I think that's landed that narrative now. Yeah, I think that's, I think really that, that's one, isn't it? That, uh, that argument is now basically mm-hmm. accepted and... Uh... I think that's going to sustain change over the next decade. As long as we are continuing to deliver those jobs and economic opportunities, then that is going to be a major, a major driver. Um, Madeline, just uh, looking at a little bit more of the detail. So if we talk about renewables and, and, and the paper talks about power, 
been overwhelmingly decarbonized by 2030. And, and again, repeating the the target around offshore wind, which I guess the Conservatives are very comfortable with, 40 gigawatts of offshore wind energy, but there's not a lot of real detail there about other technologies, and particularly wind and solar, which we, we know we need, onshore wind and solar. W- what would you have liked to have seen in, in the paper in those areas? Um, so I think it was quite interesting to see how much there was on offshore wind, CCS, nuclear you know, most of the commitments were actually, if you look at the power section, around CCS and nuclear. Um, some very, very ambitious stuff on fusion, etc. Um, so there wasn't very much, there wasn't loads on offshore wind, actually, even though that stuff is very ambitious. And there was almost nothing on onshore wind and solar, as you say. Um, well, it's the cheapest technology to get this de- decarbonisation. Yeah, exactly. We keep on saying that, but uh, yeah. Yeah, we're just not seeing anything to help that deployment at all. You know, we... We, we need some changes to the CFDs. Um, so, so we are seeing changes to CFDs. I should be more positive and say that, um, you know, that we've had some, uh, we, we got solar and onshore wind put back into the CFD pots um, last earlier this year. We're seeing more rounds of CFDs being promised, 12 gigawatts promised for, for contracts for difference. Um, and, you know, so we, we can push that and keep pushing for more regular auctions, which will help onshore wind and solar as they get those, those contracts. Um, and yeah, to just to stay on the positive and maybe a little chink in the armour that we might see. So we've been saying for a long time that, you know, the planning policy for onshore wind is not favourable. It's not an outright ban, but it basically is. Um, they do have something in there about the national policy statements on planning that need to be brought in line with net zero. And they're doing a wholesale review of those. There maybe is a chink in the armour there that we might be able to push for onshore wind to, to the planning approach to be changed. Yeah, it's interesting. The, the National Infrastructure Strategy, which the Treasury uh, published a couple of weeks ago, uh, did have a figure in there for the proportion of electricity that would be renewable by 2030, which I think was 65%. I mean, it wasn't a target, but was a sort of an expectation. And, and I thought it was quite useful to sort of set that out because it gives you an idea of the scale of the change that's that's needed. It would have been nice, I think, in this paper, particularly in the in, in the summary to actually sort of spell out what's needed because I think we all know what's needed but it's not really been been recognized is that is that right Merlin uh when is the target not a target yeah when it's an expectation uh, 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 <laughs> you can almost imagine the, the kind of the wordsmithing that went in into that and the number of people it bounced back and forth are we setting a target 65 percent renewables means a lot of onshore wind yeah, yeah. Yeah, and yeah. a lot of solar you can't get it you know by 2030 we're not going to have you know, nuclear fusion or, or, or CCS? I think, I mean, what there there is, you know, stated very clearly in this and the national infrastructure strategy that the, you know, the backbone of our electricity system will be variable renewables, wind and solar. So I think that is a bit of a Rubicon that the government has, has now crossed. I mean, the last policy paper I remember was under Amber Rudd. It wasn't a white paper, it was some sort of statement. And it was all about how to get more gas built was the kind of number one... You know, so I, I know I'm going back a bit, but you know, I remember that. I remember. <laughs> we have crossed to kind of, as I say, I think a bit of a, a Rubicon. Um, you can within the Committee on Climate Change balanced pathway with the National Infrastructure Strategy and within the modelling addendum to this paper, um, you can see, uh, you know, you can derive the numbers. Uh, I think the Committee on Climate Change talks about three gigawatts of solar a year, for example, up to a sort of as required 
the modeling in here has got it's got big ranges solar between 15 and 120 gigawatts onshore wind between 15 and 60 gigawatts offshore between 40 and 120 gigawatts so those are 2050 plausible capacity ranges under basis modeling um and they're sort of pointing towards towards the, the center so but they're not that that's not in the brochure if you like is it is no it? no i'm going uh, to suggest maybe regen we should pull those numbers out and maybe attach them to this uh this podcast because i hadn't noticed those numbers in in detail you've obviously been doing your homework merlin page six of the modeling methodology annex to thank, you. <laughs> thank you thank you anyone like Madeline, you wanted as there, i was just going to say um by saying that and i guess the reason they're not in the brochure is that the tory party you know still has a deep nervousness about onshore renewables large-scale onshore renewables and the kind of you know the response from the the country lobby and from backbench mps yeah and Mullen, you wanted to come in on that yeah i think that's interesting to just reflect on that and look at you know so i started this by saying that there's a lot of commitments on nuclear ccs hydrogen all of which uh, CCS and hydrogen not yet proven, nuclear fusion not yet proven. I mean, it's stuff of jokes really in, in many circles in the energy sector. Um, and a commitment to fund, agree some funding on nuclear for a new nuclear by the end of this parliament, so 2025. You know, none of this stuff is going to get built for years. We talk, so there's a big gap there. So, okay, so they're not talking about how they're going to do onshore wind and solar. But it is in the modelling and it's we have that technology, it's ready to deploy, we can do this stuff. So in the meantime, it is going to happen whilst we're waiting for these big grand technologies to happen. We'll just be keeping deploying all these renewable technologies that we have at our fingertips. So maybe it's just the expectation is that, you know, wind and solar is just going to happen. I mean, we're, we're approaching this post-subsidy world. Maybe they feel their work mm. is done and all, all we need to do is, you know, get the markets right. I say that, although there is an interesting discussion in the paper about, you know, what happens when at the end of CFDs and what happens when we enter this new world where, you know, very high renewable penetration, um, potentially very low marginal cost of energy and the wholesale price uh, no longer works. And it does seem to tee up a discussion which we need to have quite soon about, well, what happens post CFD and how do we support those markets? Did you, um, did you see that section, um, Madeleine? Yeah, I mean, as a as a policy geek, I just find that stuff absolutely fascinating. And everyone else is, wants to wants to talk about these big targets and the actual good stuff. I'm just like, oh, the opportunity for a big review of markets. That's brilliant. How exciting! <laughs> I mean, and, God, what's my life become that I do find that? And there is I, a, I, and I, so there is a consultation, yeah. I think, which is enabling a high renewable net zero electricity system call for evidence which i think is coming out in the new year and um or maybe it's already out actually. it's already out now it's already yeah, out it's okay by february it, i think is the response end so. of february so it's actually not very long to to talk about such a big concept you know so it's looking at some um it's looking at what the future of cfds is themselves but also how you say like you say that broader market will work in a, in a renewable system so you know there's really interesting stuff to consider here which it's quite interesting to look at like the the storage side of um, how we've been looking uh, working towards a merchant model. It's all about trading. It's a very different perspective, and how we can bring some of that into the renewable uh, in, into renewable generation. So doing a bit of learning there about how we persuade investors to be more comfortable with with merchant risk. It's something one of our members was saying the other day is really uh, interesting shift for investors. 
you know, how we look at um, more locational incentives as well. How can they be brought into the market? That's something that consultation is is looking at. You know, how do we, we, we have locational incentives in different ways, but how can they be more inherent in the market so that we're not bringing on uh, loads of gas generation in the, in the southeast to, to, um, and turning down lots of, of wind in, in north of Scotland? So those are some fundamental questions about the market structure for power and electricity, which we'll no doubt come back to. But I'd like to, to move us on, if I can, to the other big topic area, the, the big challenge around heat and, the, uh, and the, uh, the built environment. I suppose there's a degree of disappointment there. I mean, things like the Future Home Standard is still talking about, you know, as soon as possible. Um, you know, there's not a committed date to implement that yet. And, and definitely a rowback on what we thought was quite a dramatic announcement about uh, banning gas boilers in new homes or gas connections in new homes by 2023 in the 10-point plan, which Merlin spotted had disappeared and has now been replaced by, I can't remember the wording now, but it's a, you know, a consultation on whether it's appropriate to, to ban gas connections in new homes, which is a, which is a major step back. So are we disappointed about heat and the built environment, Merlin? Well, I think your point about the future home standard is a is a real uh, warning sign. It's the, it's the main red flag in this about our earlier discussion is are they you know are we serious? Is this government uh, serious? New homes, you know, we've set a statutory target of twenty fifty for zero carbon. Building houses that don't that will have to retrofit to achieve that is clearly nuts. I mean, I think we can all agree on that. It should be the easy one to agree on. And this has been a, a terrible history. It's probably been some of the worst policy failures of the last decade or so, where we had a, a, a new home standard, you know, set to go zero carbon homes, set to go sort of five years ago, and then got pulled as a result of industry lobbying. And we're seeing the same. Now we've got a new standard that the government, future home standard, that the government was sort of trailing would come in by 2023, you know, on a, on a the Wednesday of the 10-point plan, by the Thursday, that had been airbrushed out. Um, now, they seem to row back even further in the Energy White Paper and talk about a consultation about whether to do it by 2025. So, yeah, I, that is disappointing because it should be the most easy and obvious uh, area, and it's a clear sign that the government will buckle on some of these tough decisions when lobbying kicks in. And this lobbying, is this still essentially the building industry, the large house builders that you think are, are lobbying behind this, or is it the gas? I, uh, um, well? Probably a mix of, of both, but uh, I mean, it has to, you know, it, the house builders have had a lot of influence on the Conservative Party for a number of years and developers. I mean, that's just, I think, a, a fact. And uh, exactly how that, that's come about is hard to say, but there's clearly been quite a lot of pressure and influence brought to bear. The, the disappointing thing here really is that, you know, homeowners and home buyers are not exerting more pressure on the market. You would have thought that a, a net zero home would command a premium and therefore, you know, the economics of house building would, would be pushing house builders towards more efficient homes. I mean, it does seem to be a failure if we're still building homes which are inefficient. We just haven't geared up enough yet in terms of the kind of uh, you know, the, the importance of energy efficiency in homes and I don't I just don't think people and house buyers are yet seeing that you know yet feel that there's a framework that they can really trust um, and so I think partly they just don't really believe the labels and the rhetoric 
around, around it at, at, the, at the moment. Uh, so I, I think if we had a proper standard properly enforced, uh, I think people would be a lot more, um, you know, a lot more sensitive uh, to this. Okay, so um, there's, there's a few things on the heat side which are probably worth mentioning more positively. Um, big push on heat pumps, 600,000 heat pump installations a year by 2028, which is, I mean, a massive increase in where we are at the moment and maybe questions about how that's going to be achieved. Not a lot on the replacement of the RHI, although there is um, a discussion about the clean, the clean heat grant, which they're going to consult on again and looking to bring in something I guess, in 2022 when the RHI runs out. So there are a few bits and pieces on the heat side that we um, we should probably acknowledge. Um, we're coming towards the end of the discussion, so I'd like you just to pick out maybe, and we, we've not covered a lot of the paper, I have to say, so the, the whole area around transport, for example, and markets and governance. So maybe just ask you to pick out your, your highlights from the other sections of the paper that you might want to mention. So, um, Madeline, what's really caught your eye? Um, so I should probably say something about storage. I mean, we, we run the electricity storage network and uh, within that network, we've been waiting for this paper for a long time. We've always known that storage isn't necessarily going to be mentioned in a 10 point plan or a spending review or an infrastructure strategy. Uh, so this is really the paper, the detail that, that storage needs. So a lot of the market stuff will be enabling storage, but actually it does get some explicit mentions as well. So the need to define storage in legislation is great that that's come back up again um, how long has that been now oh, i mean it was three years since they said they were going to do that so i mean fantastic to see it reiterated at such a high level um and that it will come out again in, the, in another smart systems and flex plan next year that's great but when parliamentary time allows and do some air quotes that you can't see on the podcast <laughs> there, um we all know how much parliamentary time is being taken up by all sorts of stuff at the moment so who knows when that will actually be? I think we might still be waiting quite a long time for that. Um, but yeah, you know, at least it's being recommitted to. They've not they've not rode back from that. That's good. Uh, lots of stuff on long duration storage, which I was really pleased about. You know, Johnny and I have had quite a lot of good, interesting discussions about how long duration, what the necessity is for long duration storage, what sort of technologies will deliver it. And Bayes and the government are really jumping on that and they're really interested in it. We've got lots and lots of innovation funding coming up. I think it'd be quite good to see next year how they start looking at how we can actually incentivize that long duration storage in the market. So instead of just grant funding up front, which is great, we still need that, don't want to reject that at all. But, you know, how what sort of markets will be coming forward to incentivize long duration storage? Good. And Merlin, what's your what's your highlight from the, the best of the rest? Yeah, so well, I guess one of the Big questions uh, here is if you look at the heat sections you've been talking about, Johnny, and the 600,000 heat pumps a year, a ban on internal combustion engines in uh, in transport. And I guess on the heat, we're waiting for the heat and building strategy. It seems that does feel a bit like we're always waiting for that next strategy, but that, that's where the, the real heat detail apparently is going to be. One of the things that that does raise is do we have the infrastructure to, to cope with that? Can we get you know the power to uh, to to uh, can we replace that whole fuel supply chain for transport uh, of tankers through the streets straits of Hormuz or whatever and, and put it all through the electricity system and then we add on heat pumps uh, as well and is the signals going to the networks and the utilities and the system operator uh, from the 
government and from the regulator to make the investment that's required to prepare the infrastructure for that. So the fact that there are, uh, let's talk about a, um, a kind of new direction to Ofgem, if you like, a sort of guidance document for Ofgem and a review of the revolver of the system operator. It sort of takes back the electricity system a bit, but it, it's fundamental in terms of setting up the electricity system and the networks to have the infrastructure to deliver the decarbonisation in heat and transport areas. That's an area, obviously, Regen spent a lot of time thinking about and looking at and working with, uh, with, with on. But, you know, it's a critical area because if we get a few years down the line and I order my heat pump and plug it in and the, the local network operator puts up a, a red light and says, sorry, the system can't cope, then or I try and plug my Tesla in and, you know, it's a, a sorry, you can't do that for five hours. That, that's... You know, back to our consumers and public opinion, etc. That's just not going to work. So, getting the infrastructure ready and the system operation ready is really is really important. And there are some important signals in this white paper that government's taken that seriously. And so that that discussion about whether Ofgen needs more direction seems to be addressed, and and something's going to come from government, which I think Ofgen will welcome in terms of setting out their their remit and their their objectives more clearly. Um, my little extra bit I, I was pleased to see was a discussion about consumers and the transparency around um, green energy products, particularly green energy tariffs. As you, as you know, I've been banging on a little bit about that and the sort of misleading marketing that's going on at the moment. So it'd be great if the, you know, if the government does set out some clear guidance on that. And I think that's important because it will create more value for genuine green renewable energy and you know that premium that green energy should earn in the marketplace will go some way to replace the loss of loss of subsidies in the future so it relates back to that whole market structure and value thing which i think is is critical for future investment i'm going to wrap up now but i just in terms of looking ahead you know this this white paper a bit of a smorgasbord of of consultations coming up and and uh, new policies that we're expecting to see next year what what are the key things you're really looking for um, in the next year? Uh, let's take that first. But what what sort of quality of, of vintage uh, are we expecting? I guess the um, the claret, the, the you know the heavy. I think a nice Bordeaux would be good, wouldn't it? Yeah. We've had this slightly wishy washy Beaujolais, yeah. it's lacking body. Yeah. So we're I, looking for a full blooded, you know, Bordeaux. Uh, and, and I think that's the the heat and building strategy would. Would, would sort of you know that's that's not going to be the most exciting read but uh, for me that's the single most important policy document madeline what are you looking forward to next year oh there's just so much uh, <laughs> i mean great that you know we've had you know father christmas has delivered all these presents into the tree for us to to open and look at next year uh so you know i think the stuff i'm really looking forward to uh, say looking forward to gosh how my life has changed that this is the sort of thing that I'm looking forward to three years ago I was traveling around the world and getting excited about you know climbing up various different mountains now I'm excited to climb the mountain of Ofgem's energy policy so uh, <laughs> <laughs> how life has changed uh, but yeah I think the stuff Ofgem's policy and strategy review or the strategy and policy policy statement I think that's going to be really fundamental some of these governance changes and how we're going to see uh, as Merlin was saying, the ESO uh, ownership question shaping up. We expected to see a bit more on that in this paper, and we haven't seen that. That seems to have been delayed a bit, but that will happen. Ofgem's structure will change, and I'm sorry, um, the ESO structure will change, and that will be really significant for us. So 
Because yes, I was looking for that, and um, you know, because we'd had some conversations previously about the ESO structure, and it doesn't doesn't seem to feature at all. So that's still in discussions, I guess. Great. Yeah, yeah. pushed back, I think, unfortunately. So um, a, a big year to come. Lots of work for you, Madeline. Lots of consultations that we'll be <laughs> responding to and and writing up. And uh, um, I think I just wish you all a very very happy Christmas and uh, um, and and stay stay safe over the Christmas period. And uh, um, I guess we'll speak to everybody in our next uh, podcast. Thank you very much, Johnny. Thanks, Johnny. Thank you. Thank Cheers. You. Bye. Bye. Bye.